Well, welcome. Thank you for coming today to our Politics of Game of Thrones panel. Um, so this is a panel that's co-hosted by the R Street Institute and the Cato Institute. My name is Caleb Watney. I'm a tech policy analyst at the R Street Institute, and I'll be your moderator for the evening. We're so excited to have all of you here, and thanks for all of you joining online. Uh, I know we're going to have a really interesting conversation today. To start off, I'd like to ask all of you to silence your phones, but please do not turn them off. Um, we'd love all of you to join in on camp on the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag, hashtag GOTPolitics, um, which you can find also on the bottom of the screen behind me. Um, we'll also be taking some questions towards the end um, for the panel from Twitter and from the live audience. Um, so I'd love to see your, your thumbs a-twiddling. Um, we also have a Snapchat filter, which many of you may already know, but if you don't, it's there. So be sure to use that. Um, before we officially begin, I'd just like to give a brief note on why are we doing this? Um, I think kind of a, <laughs> um, a, a common refrain that I hear whenever I bring up this topic is, you know, obviously Game of Thrones is set in the setting it is because George R. R. Martin just really likes writing about sword fights and, you know, we don't need to analyze any further into why, you know, they're stuck in a particular place in technological progress or um, what the institutions and the incentives of the world are because they're all just created because George R. R. Martin wants it to be that way. Um, but one, that misses out on a lot of fun. You know, we're all nerds, we all love politics and economics and so why might as well apply our tools and our interests to this world that we love and enjoy. Um, secondly, I think George R. R. Martin would have wanted it. Um, I wanted to read here, there's a, there's a really good quote. Uh, he's talking about uh, one of his main mentors, um, uh, Tolkien, and he says, ruling is hard, and this was my answer to Tolkien, whom, as much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy, that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at history, and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for a hundred years, and he was wise and good. But Tolkien didn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? <laughs> did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And what about all those orcs? By the end of the war, Sauron is gone, and all of the orcs aren't gone. They're in the mountains. Did Aragorn pursue a policy of systematic genocide and kill them all? Even the little baby orcs and the little orc cradles? <laughs> So I, I think you know, George R. R. Martin is certainly one with an eye for world building. And I think it's a testament really to his writing that we can draw implications of the system and of the world he's built that go far beyond his original, uh, I think, view of the world. And then finally, I think this gives us a, a valuable opportunity to examine the way that institutions, philosophy, and incentives can affect economic development, even in a fictional world. In some ways, we can use fiction to run simulations of our own history over and over again, changing subtle variables and seeing what might have happened. What would human society have looked like if our winters were unpredictable and lasted years at a time? What if mag magic and dragons existed? Presumably, these changes would have had big effects on our economic and political development, but in what ways? And those are the kinds of questions that we're here to answer tonight. Um, so without further ado, I will introduce our panelists. I'm going to keep it short because you should really know all of these people already. Um, but we have immediately to my right, Peter Suderman, uh, who is a senior editor at Reason. He writes regularly on healthcare, the federal budget, tech policy, and pop culture. He is also a pop culture columnist for Vox. Uh, next, we have Matt Iglesias, who is a co-founder and executive editor at Vox.com, where he writes on basically every policy topic imaginable, including Game of Thrones. Uh, he's also the author of the book, most recently, uh, The Rent is Too Damn High. 
next, we have Ilya Soman, who is an adjunct scholar here at the Cato Institute. He's also a professor of law at the George Mason University. Uh, he's the author of numerous books, his most recent of which is the second edition of De uh, Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter. And finally, we have Alyssa Rosenberg, who is a culture columnist at the Washington Post opinion section. And in my opinion, she gives some of the smartest critiques of the series in her weekly reviews at the Post. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you <laughs> to say. Um, so these are our panelists, and we have many questions to talk about. Um, broadly, we'll be talking in four major categories, economics, international relations, law, and culture. And then we'll be taking some audience questions towards the end. Um, but first, because I know you guys are all wondering, what did you think of the episode last night? I mean, it's a mixed bag, right? Uh, it's, in, it's pretty exciting, uh, but this, this season has really felt different than a lot of the previous seasons. It's been much faster, um, much more plot-driven, and much more cinematic. I think we saw all of that last night. Uh, it's, it's really big in a way that's very crowd-pleasing, that's kind of driven by fan service, by a desire to show off what they can do in terms of effects on a TV budget. At the same time, I think it lacks some of the sort of uh, nuanced, methodical, character-driven pacing of the previous seasons, in particular of the kind of the, the, the best seasons, two, three, and four. Um, and so we're just not, you know, the, the show has changed in some ways. And like I said, it's very exciting, very thrilling. It's also, in some ways, a little bit disappointing, a little bit frustrating at this point. Well, I was, I was saying to Peter before uh, the panel started that the, the last time I was here at Cato, it was for a discussion of William Fischel's latest book about zoning. And the, uh, <laughs> the, the turnout wasn't quite as high. And so I was, I was very glad to see that, that in the most recent episode, we had that little discussion of the size of King's Landing and the sort of possible economic benefits of urban agglomeration. So and you really liked it. I, I finally got the zoning <laughs> angle for Game of Thrones that, that I've been needing professionally. I, it so happens that I'm a property professor, among other things, so I too write about zoning. It's one of the relatively few issues that Matt and I tend to agree about, that there's too much zoning. That may also be the case in King's Landing, where it seems like, uh, although there may be a million people there, uh, there are not enough poor people who are able to move there and find financial opportunities. That's why, as Tyrion says, the wages in King's Landing are higher uh, <laughs> than they are in the North, and yet uh, not very many workers have moved from the North to King's Landing. That said, uh, I tend I tend to agree with Peter's assessment of the episode in the season. I think it does have some of the virtues we associate with Game of Thrones. There's some great dialogue, some great acting, uh, and some great set piece scenes. On the other hand, uh, the plot has been moving on in a onrush that increasingly doesn't make a lot of sense in some cases. The rules of the world have been uh, broken repeatedly, uh, or perhaps there's been an unanticipated burst of technological development, such as ravens that fly at the speed of light, uh, or so Euron... Zombie ice dragons. Yes, I mean, uh, well, dragons are well, the big well that actually is not inconsistent with the rules of the world. Uh, <laughs> technological uh, development, uh, though, uh, <laughs> The rules of the fictional world it is inconsistent with our world, I think. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, and in Game of Thrones, uh, we have a sense of how fast armies and ships in the white can move or be built. Uh, but now we have Euron mass producing a thousand ships in a few months. Uh, and we have armies moving at the speed of World War II Ponser divisions and other uh, such developments. And I understand why the needs of the plot require this, but it's 
somewhat unfortunate. There's also, I think, some plot-driven stupidity by some of the characters uh, which occurred uh, during the season, such as in the ill-fated white expedition, which we might talk about later. That said, whatever they're doing, they must be doing something right because we're all still watching the movie and uh, this event has a much, uh, watching the show, this event has a much bigger turnout than any other think tank panel that I've ever been on. So uh, <laughs> you can't criticize them too much. All I'm saying is that if the Cato Institute has me on as a fellow to essentially be the resident expert on ice zombies and, you know, horns that bring down giant walls and, you know, the Lord of Light, I can guarantee this kind of turnout every week. So clearly, you know, I'm doing something right. So as the, as the resident person who gets paid to sit around and read 900-page fantasy novels uh, rather than know anything about zoning, I, and as who someone who cares a lot about these novels, I found the end of this season really frustrating. Are we op operating, this is a, this is a spoiler-filled zone, okay? Uh, everyone here cool with that? I'm not gonna break anybody's heart if I start uh, talking in great and nerdy detail. I think the thing that I found really frustrating about this, the end of this season of Game of Thrones is that it made me feel foolish for having taken the text seriously, and it, most importantly, for having taken seriously the idea that there was an underlying magical set of rules and structures that was supposed to be emerging over the course of the novels that would perhaps be surprising, but would make the world of the show make sense. And, you know, a lot of what happened in this season was casting these sorts of things aside. You know, we've had seven seasons worth of discussions about what it would take to bring down the wall, a structure that is built by, you know, one of the founding sort of people of Westeros that theoretically has special magical protection. And, oh, it just takes ice zombies. It's not the Horn of Winter. It's not that there is, you know, anything special about what has to happen here. It's just a special effect. Um, I also just felt like this series treated us a little bit like we were stupid for the first time. I mean, this is a show that lays down breadcrumbs for you. Who here was not aware that R plus L equaled J before, say, the fourth episode of this season? Anyone willing to raise a hand and brave that confession? I mean, this is a series where if you watch it closely, you'll figure things out. You don't actually need a, you know, sort of grumpy kid who has been spending too much time communing with a tree to give you a monologue um, <laughs> that explains where someone came from. And so I felt like this was not the version of the show that it is its best self, either as sort of a dense fantasy text or as a sort of grand television spectacle. And that was a little bit of a bummer. Well, I appreciate all of your honesty in terms of a, a blatant <laughs> assessment of the show. Um, but without further ado, we'll move to our first section, which is economics. Um, so I think a good way of kind of being introduced to these ideas and a lot of the institutions that, that form this, this world that we are all uh, very much enthralled with is sort of the big question. Westeros, as far as we know, has 8,000 years of recorded history. The last major economic development that we're aware of was the invention of steel when the Andals invaded about 6,000 years ago. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we've developed driverless cars 2,000 years after the invention of steel. Uh, 6,000 years later, though, they're still stuck in basically the same world. And I think that begs the question, why? And I think lots of people have interesting ideas in here. Some people have suggested it's like a scarcity of dragons, or maybe it's the volatility of seasonal patterns makes it difficult to plan. Um, or, you know, maybe the maesters need institutional reform and they're holding back progress. But I'd love to know the thoughts of our panelists. 
I mean, if I can start with the really nerdy response, in the novels and to a lesser extent in the show, there is the idea that there was this city called Valyria that was kind of a legendary city of wonder, a place of great innovation, magic, lots of dragons, plenty of Targaryens, that was destroyed in this mysterious catastrophe. And so to a certain extent, you can look at Game of Thrones as a story not about a society where... Um, technological and economic advancement has stopped, but where something has been sort of, there is an event that has yet to be explained and maybe will never be explained that either slowed progress or kind of threw development into the past. I would note that there are, you have things like wildfire, so you have developments in, I think, weapons production, but less so in the sort of the economy or the everyday economy itself. Yeah, so... Westeros does have several factors that economic theorists and historians point to as slowing down growth. One is actually long-standing political unity. For hundreds or thousands of years, the Targaryens dominated Westeros with a single unified state, and historically competition between states, like in early modern Europe, for example, has been important to economic development. Secondly, the institution of the maesters probably is a problem. Uh, they monopolize, for the most part at least, intellectual development and scientific thought and the like, and uh, that uh, slows progress. Moreover, they're oriented to just conserving existing knowledge, like recovering old manuscripts and the like, rather than creating new knowledge. Uh, and they don't even do a very good job of conserving the existing knowledge, as we've seen in this uh, current season. Uh, so that's uh, potentially a problem. The fact that there is a, a severe winter to last many years and comes along periodically, doubt may hold up progress. Uh, some people also claim that the presence of magic and dragons uh, may hold down technological development, although I'm not sure this is correct. I would think there are some technologies that are actually synergistic with magic or with dragons that can work well along with them, like you know, luxury compartments that can help you fly on the dragon or make better <laughs> use of dragons and the like. Uh, it's a but, limited market, but, yeah, though. It's like private It's jets. a limited market at first, but, uh, well, at First, only the rich could fly jets. Today, almost everybody can. You would imagine at first only a few wealthy people, dragon queens or whatnot, could fly on a dragon. But as you breed more transport dragons and so forth over time, maybe the average common person of Westeros could uh, commute by dragon and the like. Don't, uh, you, get that, in, don't uh, you get into resource problems there, though? I mean, dragons need to eat a lot to keep well, growing. There's so a whole big continent. What, what population of dragons can Westeros actually support? Is there a dragon production facility... <laughs> and what are the regulations that are pro prohibiting it from being more effective? Well, obviously, the dragon pit I mean, is an, is yeah, an so, example so, of overregulation, so right? It was actually a late development, but early on, of course, the Targaryens did try to monopolize the breeding of dragons for the obvious reason that they didn't want anybody else to have any uh, and, and offset their military advantage. So there are all these factors that may stifle economic development. That said, I frankly don't think there are enough to lead to anything like 6,000 years of total stagnation. And even 0.1% growth per year should have led to a lot more development than you actually have here. So I feel like either there's sort of supernatural forces that are creating economic stagnation, maybe the gods of the seven or sort of the other gods in a show, or this is just the needs of the plot where you want 6,000 years of medieval history in the background as 
opposed to 6,000 years of technological development. Well, we're at Cato, so I also have to ask, isn't a monarchy a problem? I mean, you have the contrast between Westeros, which is dominated by, you know, a royal monarchy and a bunch of sort of stagnant noble houses, and then you have the free cities like Bravos and Volantes. And why aren't they developing more? That's actually an even bigger mystery than why Westeros doesn't develop, because Essos, unlike Westeros, does have many of the preconditions for development. There is competition between jurisdictions, there is trade, there is financial institutions like the There's a new like service economy, Bank. you have the well, faceless men. Yeah, there's an excellent <laughs> service economy. They have servants of all kinds, uh, including some for sale, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do think the, the, the Essos contrast is, is key to sort of think about this because the social institutions over there are so different. And it seems to me that Essos is portrayed as somewhat more prosperous than Westeros. They have a, a more sophisticated society, a somewhat higher level of material culture, but it's not fundamentally different, even though they have uh, what seems like a more uh, conducive to growth sort of system of, of political fragmentation. Uh, they don't have maesters monopolizing knowledge. They're, they're still held back by, by something. I, I think that you have to assume that it has something to do with the seasons, right? The, the variable length seasons are so prominent in the world building and the mythology of, of Planetos that they must be playing a critical role here because it's not really clear to me that the plot in any way does require the 6,000 years of stagnation, right? If you just kind of chop some zeros off a few of those numbers, I don't know that anything in the core of the story that we've seen would actually look all that different. Uh, just as the multi-length seasons have not played a crucial role in what we've seen so far. But we do know that these are sort of two pillars of world building, right? That the society is very old and the society is afflicted by a, a very odd sort of weather. And there must be some kind of linkage between them that probably a huge amount of the savings and planning that exists is very narrowly focused on trying to preserve food for the winters, right? Rather than on uh, building up uh, other kinds of productive resources. It also must really make it difficult. I was joking about zoning, but um, it's hard to develop the kind of agricultural surpluses that would let you have cities and more specialization of labor when you not only need to grow enough food to feed people, but you need to grow enough food to feed people sort of through an unknown, no harvest, three, four, six. I mean, we don't even know how long these winters last, but you can imagine that would be really sort of devastating to urban life and that it would impact both continents that we've seen, even though they have different kinds of societies. Uh, another issue potentially is coal. Uh, there's a tradition in the historical literature, at any rate, of, of arguing that the presence of coal deposits was really critical to the Industrial Revolution in England. Uh, as far as we know, they, they don't have any of that there uh, for reasons that are, that are somewhat unclear, but it but it's possible that you simply can't develop the technology of industrialization without those kind of natural resources. If I may just quickly on that point, do you think that wildfire is stable enough? I mean, it seems to be the substance with the largest output per gram of any substance we've seen in <laughs> Westeros. Um, can wildfire be used to fuel an energy renaissance? I think part of the problem is that you sort of can't stop it once it's started, right? It's not like it's variable current. It's, you know, you, you set it off, you better be prepared to burn it for a long time. The Valyrians had some kind of fire pits, right? You know, I would have to check on that. That's a, So, I mean, part of the problem here is 
that so with wildfire or with whatever um, is beyond all of these kind of social technological explanations, which I do think have some merit, and I think the seasons are obviously a big part of it. Uh, what Westeros and the rest of the world of the game of Game of Thrones lacks is the idea of progress. And you just don't see anyone in the show ever have a sense that things will be radically different 50 or 100 or 500 years from now. They basically assume that things will be this, people will still be living in castles and pulling carts behind them. And there may be a few dragons around, but mostly we'll do things with donkeys and mules. (laughs) And that people will fight with swords. There's not, for example, there's not a lot of science fiction that you can find in the world of Game of Thrones because people don't have this sense that that the world of the future is one that is going to be radically different. And that's true in human history as well. Um, The idea of economic progress, of technological progress is a relatively new one. And it's uh, and, and it's an idea that's extremely powerful once a society kind of gets it uh, in its head, but it's just not an idea that has ever come to Westeros, that has ever come to the world of Game of Thrones. And instead, what they have is an idea that everything is a zero-sum game, that everything is stagnant, that either you win or you lose or you bend the knee, and that's it. And when that's the idea that everyone, including and especially the people in power and the people who are the leadership of the society and kind of set the tone for how a society is going to think, then no one is going to think, well, let's harness wildfire and figure out how to start an energy revolution. They're just going to think, wildfire is dangerous. I guess we can use it as a weapon like we've always done for 6,000 years. I want to push back on that, though, a little bit, Peter, because you do have a number of characters in the series who do see the possibility that things can be different, that history can be different. Their focus just isn't economic, it's social. You have Mance Rader, who's the king beyond the wall, who has this unbelievably daring idea of putting together a confederation of people who will still be relatively free and able to choose their leaders, but they'll be unified for the first time as a society, and they'll do this unbelievably daring thing of relocating their entire society to a new place. To a certain extent, Daenerys Targaryen has the same plan, right? I mean, she wants to unify the folks in Slaver's Bay, the Dothraki. She wants to get the Dothraki to do something that they they explicitly don't do, which is to cross the Narrow Sea, go to Westeros, and try to conquer and then somehow assimilate into this new society. So I, I don't think it's quite true that people don't have an idea of what progress looks like. I mean, you have Tyrion Lannister talking about alternative governance strategies for Westeros. It's just that those people are thinking politically and socially, not economically. I would push back in some ways even more in that I don't think you have to have the idea of progress to make progress. There wasn't much in the way of an idea of progress in the ancient world, the Greeks and Romans. They still made a lot of progress. The actual Middle Ages, which today we think of, oh, that was a period of total stagnation, like in Westeros, maybe that stereotype gave Martin the idea for what he did, but there was actually a lot of technological progress in the Middle Ages, particularly in agriculture, in trade, in shipbuilding, uh, the invention of the stirrup occurred during the early Middle Ages. That was a big deal. The invention of crop rotation and other agricultural techniques. Uh, And so even if people don't have a grand idea of progress, they might have an idea, if I can harness wildfire to help produce things, I can make a lot of money. Uh, If I can uh, build a better mousetrap and catch more mice, uh, you know, the lord or the merchant will pay me more money than for the cruddy mousetrap, which is currently on the market and so forth. And those kind of things did cause progress in the Middle Ages at a slower rate than later, but they did occur. And it seems like 
in the world of Westeros, there are people who are entrepreneurial in that sort of way that we see. We see merchants, we see the Iron Bank, we see people who do this kind of thing. And one would expect that over time there would be gradual technological progress, even if poor institutions and poor incentives uh, prevented it from being as great as it could be. It, it is worth saying, I mean, I don't think that we know it's been entirely stagnant, that we, we focus mostly on the sort of uh, military equipment that they fight with, which appears very medieval, plate mail, swords, things like that. Uh, their communication technology is much more advanced than, than medieval Europe uh, in, in terms of their, their well-trained birds. Um, their, <laughs> and their advances in, in the life sciences and, and medicine seem to be beyond what we had in, in medieval Europe. And that, that's even before the resurrection. And, and things like that. Uh, you know, in, in the books, they seem to have some understanding of how to disinfect wounds, for example, fairly effectively. They have uh, a moon tea, which seems to work for uh, produce medical abortions. So there's some... Si- oh, we also... It's not entirely clear to me what the state of their shipbuilding technology is, but at times, Euron seems to be able to sail very quickly. Um, <laughs> But, build ships very quickly, too. <laughs> build, build ships very quickly. Um, so, you know, we don't... They clearly have not developed gunpowder or the printing press, which are important sort of marquee inventions in, in real-world history. But there are some aspects in which they have a, a very impressive technological domain. And we don't see much of consumer goods one way or the other and, and don't really know what exists there. And we in particular don't know what's new. So it, it's possible that we're seeing a very, very slow progress rather than an absolute stagnation. On the other hand, the ravens are getting much faster very rapidly. <laughs> yes. yes. So they, they do have very advanced genetic engineering of ravens, which seem to have been developed in the course of the last season. Uh, also very fast shipbuilding. Uh, and clearly there must be mechanized armies at this point because they're moving at the rate of World War II armies rather than at the rate of medieval armies, or even at the rate that their own armies moved in seasons two, three, and four during the War of the Five Kings. Also, the Three-Eyed Raven appears to be the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, tree Wikipedia. And, 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 the inter- and his information is much more reliable than what you can get in the internet, too. So in that respect, they're more advanced technologically than we are. <laughs> so it seems to me, um, specifically within Westeros, the, the maesters are a major barrier to progress. So if you were hired as Archmaester of the Citadel, <laughs> what institutional reforms would you undertake to facilitate growth in Westeros? Admit women. Team Gilly. <laughs> <laughs> I would break up the system of citadels, make them independent, and they compete with each other. It might have the same effect on uh, technological and philosophical development in Westeros that the Reformation had in Western Europe, where the Catholic Church's monopoly and intellectual life was broken and you had competing centers. Uh, and yes, including women, including other groups, including people who don't believe in a dominant religion, uh, that would be a good thing too. <laughs> Yeah, the the effort also to create the maesters as a politically neutral institution, uh, I can see why they think that that's a good idea. It, it sounds very high-minded, but it also seems in many ways counterproductive to having competing, you know, efforts if different political authorities are trying to 
be a friendly terrain to scholars to obtain and use more advanced technology to take advantage of it, you could imagine both sort of competition among the scholars, but also much more emphasis on, I'm not sure if you would call it commercialization, but at any rate, putting information to use rather than kind of hoarding it in, in old books it seems, uh, seems bad. The, the use of uh, celibacy as well as a sort of requirement for entry is creating a, a very strong disincentive for people to pursue any kind of knowledge or, or scholarship. You're giving up any sort of claim to, to family life and, and certain uh, aspects of human pleasure. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't seem like a great idea. <laughs> it wasn't a great idea in Star Wars either with the Jedi. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so just kind of, sorry, Peter, did oh, you want to go? Uh, I mean, I've, uh, I, I agree with all of this. I, I guess I, I would just sort of say that, uh, that what the Maester should be pr- uh, pushing for is liberal democratic self-government and, you know, and, and a kind of a, a much more open and transparent society that's not, uh, that's not ruled by blood and by, you know, uh, by authoritarians who uh, may or may not be nice and may or may not have the best interests of their people at, at heart. And that is, you know, sort of traditionally a function of, of kind of, uh, of academia and of uh, political advisors. And it's one that they're not fulfilling very well. Certainly. So next, we're going to move on to international relations. Um, and I think a, a good entry into this is uh, Daenerys at the beginning of season seven. So she comes, she has alliances all over Westeros. She has a massive navy. And most importantly, she has three dragons. Um, she considers whether or not she should just go in and bomb the King's Landing and just kind of end the war there. But she ultimately chooses not to. And I think you can draw some comparisons there to the U.S. bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, should she have firebombed King's Landing, resulting in massive civilian casualties, but maybe ending the war more decisively early, um, or did she end up doing the right thing? She should have taken out the Night King with her dragon <laughs> before trying to save John. And the, I, I, I mean, once you've made the, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think I, I, I know about the first decision. Uh, I have like a, a very strong idea. Obviously, you shouldn't like, uh, you know, kill the thousands or millions of people in the world that you're trying to rule. But if you're trying to destroy the White Walkers, take out the White Walkers who it's useful to destroy. She had an opportunity and she missed it. <laughs> I, the dragon fire also seems to me to be a more targeted weapon than the dialogue suggested. I mean, it, it was a confusing thing where you're being told that the only way to attack King's Landing with the dragons would be to destroy the whole city, but then you see the dragons aiming very precise <laughs> beams of fire, suggesting you could have just hit the red keep and then, you know, maybe thrown in some, some firefighters there. So it's a, it, there's a, there were some odd plot dynamics in this season, and that to me was like really high on the list. Yeah, so this is an example of the plot-driven stupidity that I was discussing earlier, that at the end of season six, you have a situation where Daenerys and her allies have an enormous advantage over Cersei and her forces, but the screenwriters needed some way for this conflict to drag out over all of season seven, as opposed to Daenerys just coming in, taking King's Landing, crushing the Lannister resistance, and we're on to something else relatively quickly. And it's pretty obvious that doing that not only would have been better strategy, but it would have been more humane too, because it would have saved a great deal in the terms of lives and treasure, even aside from the looming war against the Night King. Uh, as already mentioned, 
uh, you know, dragons are not super precise. They may not be quite as good as drones, but they're not nuclear weapons either. Uh, you could probably burn down just a palace plus whatever barracks the Lannister troops are in. Uh, and you know, there would be some civilian casualties from that, but not as many uh, as you get from the fighting that actually occurs where High Garden gets pillaged and a lot of it destroyed uh, or from some of the other fighting that uh, we see. Uh, moreover, it could be that a lot of Lannister troops and allies would just surrender once they see the writing on the wall. Uh, Cersei isn't exactly all that popular, and so uh, it could be that there would be even less casualties than seems to be the case. This is a sufficiently obvious strategy that a competent military or political strategist should have just suggested it to Daenerys, and she should have readily agreed. The only reason why they adopt Tyrion's overcomplicated plan is that that's one of the few ways to make this part of the plot actually interesting and exciting over a period of five or six episodes, as opposed to just a, a rapid cakewalk uh, where Daenerys uh, destroys uh, the enemy forces. But maybe, maybe there is a hidden feminist message here because Daenerys is forced to leave behind her best military strategist in Essos, uh, Dario Naharis, the mercenary leader who was her friend with benefits uh, for the previous couple seasons. And he says, why are you leaving it behind? A king would have no problem bringing a mistress with him, so why shouldn't the queen have the same right? She's like, no, I can't afford to do this. Uh, the nobility of Westeros wouldn't like it if I were doing this and have to weave open the possibility of a political marriage. So because there's this sexist double standard that Daenerys has to accommodate herself to, many, many wives are lost because she has to rely on Tyrion for uh, her military advice. And while he's a smart guy, he clearly is not a competent military strategist. <laughs> Let's talk about Dario Naharis for a minute. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think obviously a sellsword who helps you sneak into a couple of cities is not necessarily the person who you need to help plan an invasion of conquest. I also think it's completely insane that she leaves him behind to rule Slaver's Bay and the fact that the series has not adequately grappled with the fact that she has conquered the society and then essentially left it behind to fall apart is really, really, really screwed up to me, but... You know, I, I just write about them. I don't actually write them. I, I think that to go back to the initial comparison, it's not quite apt, right? I mean, there's a difference between bombing a society that you simply want to get to submit to you and that you're going to leave and you're going to go home and conquering a place that you expect to rule and to establish a dynasty in for a very long time. You know, maybe you can use dragons in a targeted way. That said, the Red Keep is pretty well fortified. So if Cersei and Gregor Clegane and Kyburn go down and have the world's most depressing coffee clatch in, you know, the Black Cells or something, you're not necessarily going to be able to get her with a targeted dragon fire strike. And if you melt, you know, a city that has an enormous amount of both the population and the economic activity of Westeros, that's probably not the greatest move long term. I think a big problem with this series beyond the questions of plot that Ilya talks about is that, you know, there isn't a sense of the society that Danny is here to conquer, right? In the earlier seasons, we have some more sense of the small folk. You have the folks who team up with the Brotherhood Without Banners. You have people like Gendry, who turns out to be someone very famous and important, but is not, you know, at the moment. You have people like Hot Pie. So you have a sense of the world that Danny wants to conquer. That's essentially disappeared by this point in the series. You know, right now the populace of Westeros is essentially being represented by Randall and Dick and Tarly shortly before they're roasted alive. And, you know, so 
that's those are the eyes through which you're seeing this conquering force. And frankly, you know, this sort of invasion of not just a lady on a dragon, but people from a bunch of different cultures who, you know, people in Westeros have no experience with. And so you have no real sense of how anyone's going to respond to Danny, and that makes her, I think, dilemma is harder to parse because you don't see her weighing a population that she actually wants to rule. You just see her moving pieces around on the painted table. Yeah, I think this is probably why I uh, lean against firebombing uh, King's Landing. I mean, it so much of the show is not just concerned with the taking of power, but with establishing that it is legitimate. And part of the reason why she hesitates, a big part, is uh, because she wants to establish herself as a legitimate ruler who is accepted by the people of this world. And if you go and take uh, and, and use Dragonfire to destroy even a small part of King's Landing, that's something that people are going to remember, and it's going to make it much harder to rule in the aftermath. Also, if you're part of a lineage where your father had a habit of just burning alive anyone who bothered him, it's probably not a great idea to just incinerate an enormous number of people at will um, if you want to prove that you're different. It's just a thought. (laughs) I I think, though, this kind of connects well, and and actually, Alyssa, you mentioned earlier, Dario being stuck in Marine. Um, She's so obsessed with, you know, being seen as legitimate in Westeros that she hightails it out of Marine. But given institutional stickiness... Should we expect that slavery is actually just going to, you know, leave Marine? Won't it collapse back? Do we have any faith that Dario will be able to, you know, maintain the, the break-in institutions that she tried to, to put in there? And if you don't think it will stick, what should she have done? I mean, in the novels, slavery comes back to Astapor, the first city that she conquers. You know, she leaves a theoretically wise council of people to rule them and then finds out six months later that people are desperately desirous to sell themselves back into slavery so that they can have something to do and something to eat. So I think the the institutional stickiness in Slaver's Bay, I would suspect, is going to be low. Yeah. So one of the strengths of this series is that it does emphasize how effective transformation of social problems and political systems does require institutional solutions and not just putting the right person in power. And both in Westeros and in Essos, there's a lot of uh, episodes and uh, scenes in both the books and the movie, I'm sorry, the TV series, which uh, emphasize this, you know, whether Marine will uh, revert back or not, I think it's kind of iffy. On the one hand, she doesn't really create that much in the way of an institutional foundation. On the other hand, she does exterminate by this point most of the pre-existing ruling class. Therefore, it'll be very hard for him to get back into power if only because most of them are dead. They were killed in the initial sack of the city, in the Harpy Rebellion, and another uh, such incident in the Battle of Marine. Uh, moreover, to the extent that most of the population, and including many of the people in power, are former slaves or people sympathetic to former slaves, it seems unlikely that slavery will come back in its old form. But it is very possible that some other form of tyranny or either some other form of uh, forced labor, perhaps, uh, will come back. Uh, And while Dario, I think, is a very good military strategist, it's not that likely that he's a very competent political leader or has great ideas for how to govern uh, Marine 
maybe Daenerys has sent back some occasional instructions saying, well, here are some, you know, some other institutions you can establish, uh, but I'm not super optimistic on that point, though I think it may well end up being better in the pre-existing system. So the real criteria by which you judge progress is not, is there an ideal Jeffersonian democracy here that has been established? It's, is it better than a situation where a large proportion of population was in slavery? I think the answer to that question might be yes, even though overall, by any objective standard, uh, it still might be a pretty sucky society. You know, I think the, the the track record of this kind of violent overthrow of an existing political order is is often not that great. Um, you, you know, we we see in the in the real world that there's a there's a tendency for a sort of a new regime created by force to itself become authoritarian. I think the question here is, you know, is the baseline condition in old Marine so bad that even a not that great new situation, you'd say, you know, is still an improvement, all things considered. I, I think that's what that's what Ilya was saying. You could also imagine, though, a, a situation, you know, Russian Revolution style, where you take a pretty bad regime, overthrow it, and eventually what consolidates in its place is, is something that's worse. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of thoughtfulness about this, right? I mean, when Daenerys wrestles with this to an extent when she is the queen about what am I doing here, but when she makes the decision to do the handoff to Dario, she becomes very, I would say, cavalier about, you know, what's the actual situation here? I mean, what's Dario's competency to do this job in a way that's consistent with her values, given how difficult she herself has found it to execute on the plan that she had? I think that on some level, it seems like she's recognizing that the task is harder than she had realized initially and is happy to sort of wash her hands of it. We don't see her uh, all that interested when she makes it over to Dragonstone in checking in on Dario's progress. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's telling in some ways. Neither Daenerys nor virtually all the other leaders that we see really think in terms of institutions as opposed to just putting the right person in power. So presumably she puts Dario in charge because A, she has to put him somewhere and she can't take him with her. And B, because it seems like he's still in love with her, he's not going to betray her, probably, she hopes. Uh, and you know that's about as deeply as she had thought about this particular matter. And she doesn't ask, you know, should there be some kind of checks and balances? You know, what protections should there be for the population? Should there be a, you know, a Bill of Rights or, a, or even a Magna Carta or something of the sort? These kinds of thoughts don't really cross her mind. I mean, regardless of what happens, I think it reflects rather poorly on Daenerys as a leader. Um, and, you know, in some ways the show is sets her up to be this kind of uh, moral, uh, you know, this extremely moral person who we're supposed to, you know, think, oh, this is a good leader. And in fact, she's really not. Uh, I mean, like all Targaryens, she's kind of power mad and doesn't really think about her subjects except to the extent that they make her feel good. Well, and part of what we see both in Marine and in Westeros is that she's relatively uninterested in the actual questions of governance, right? I mean, when Tyrion raises the possibility of figuring out a succession sort of as a way of broaching what the actual form of government is going to be like, she basically has a temper tantrum. You know, in Marine, she is basically leaving behind her hunky sellsword because he's nice or loyal or... She, he thinks she's really hot, and so he won't betray her. I mean, there's not a theory of governance here. There's a lot of talk about breaking the wheel, but there's very little analysis of what the wheel is made of, what it would take to break it, and what you build in its place 
to have as a structure to hold up the rest of your society. So what would it mean to break the wheel? Tyrion, you know, brings up, I think a couple episodes ago, that she should start thinking about her succession plan, and he kind of briefly lists, you know, you could try doing a more democratic election. Uh, would that work in Westeros? What's the best strategy for her to practically break the wheel? I mean, it's, it seems like you need some kind of move toward a, a rule of law. I, I mean, I think that even talking about how are you going to select the next king or queen is almost not quite the point. As, as far as we can tell, there are no real legal institutions at all operating. They have this trial by combat system that's absurd. Um, or sometimes it, trial by Sansa saying you're dead. <laughs> right. I mean, and there's a, there's a brief moment, right, as the, um, the High Sparrow and his movement begin to sort of gain steam when you could imagine a kind of productive tension between church and state emerging that would create some kind of competing power centers and agreed upon rules, although it instead immediately tips toward him seeming to have absolute power and then Cersei blowing everybody up and then people seeming to accept that as a legitimate source of political authority. Uh, but like this is the, the crucial development, I, I think, that, that you see in, in societies as they begin to take off before any kind of real political democracy, you have some sort of checks and balances on the power of the king, some kind of acknowledged limits. And Daenerys uh, does not seem at all inclined to that. The, the reliance on dragons uh, that comes from her family and that she has herself is very, is antithetical to the notion of some kind of a, a social compact with other competing elements because she monopolizes the dragon. Well, the closest thing you have to a kernel of both the rule of law and a democratic system is the Night's Watch, right? I mean, the Night's Watch is the social institution that sort of stands apart from any particular regime but provides a ballast to it, right? If you have committed a crime either you know, against person or property or against the regime, you can go to the wall, have that wiped out, but also be sort of removed from politics. The wall itself is governed by a rough rule of law if you desert, if you are treasonous to it. if Theoretically, if you run off to Molestown and get a little something-something, you can be punished in a variety of ways. You have a democratic election system. You have sort of a governance structure underneath um, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And part of what's really sad about the story of the Night's Watch over the series is that you see that become corrupted and fall apart. You know, you have the massacre at Craster's when Lord Commander Mormont leads the rangers beyond the wall that sort of upends that structure that's been durable and then is no longer. Part of what's sort of dangerous that you see happening with Danny right now, nobody is running off to consult with poor Dolores Ed at Castle Black. They're just running around essentially performing the functions of the Night's Watch rather than incorporating any of that expertise beyond sort of Tormund and John and, you know, bits and bobs of all of that floating around. So you have this nascent institution that, you know, has opinions about how society should be run, has expertise, is not necessarily sort of as cloistered as the maesters, um, and that provides a, you know, sort of a social outlet in society, but over the course of the series it falls apart. Yeah, so I think the key here that unifies many of these comments is thinking in institutional terms uh, and also of decentralization of power. So competing power centers like actually emerged in medieval Europe, free cities, 
merchants' guilds, uh, trading centers, uh, nobles who had some kind of authority that couldn't just be overridden by the crown any time, and there are you know a lot of other things like that. Uh, in Westeros, virtually all the competing forces, despite their differences and other issues, they still think in personalistic terms, putting the right person in power, and particularly the right person on the throne. So I think the problem is not that Daenerys doesn't care about the people uh, or that some other ruler does, and I think she actually does, at least more than the others. She frees tens of thousands of slaves. That's more than any of the others uh, have accomplished any significant degree. But she too has this intellectual limitation that she thinks mainly in personalistic terms. She talks about breaking the wheel. And so there's a sense there can be a different system, but it seems like her thinking about what that system would be like hasn't progressed beyond, uh, I will be on the throne and I will not be a bad person like my father was, uh, like Cersei is, and like all these other people are. Uh, and you know, once you know, I've done that, everything will, you know, will naturally work itself out. Uh, and you can see what she's obviously stupid and blind, but uh, this is a way of thinking which is endemic to that society and actually to so much of our real world history as well. We see it even today in liberal democratic societies where candidates promise us things like, I will bring change you can believe in, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, give me power, I alone can do it, I will solve your problems. Uh, that's a, a better and easier campaign strategy than saying, well, you know, I will build some good institutions so that there will be some good incentives to promote more economic growth, right? That doesn't fit in your 30-second ad very well. Uh, and so given that we are prone to this way of thinking ourselves, it shouldn't surprise us that people in personalistic societies are even more prone to it. Yeah, I mean, the first step... Uh, towards uh, towards breaking the wheel is to figure out a transition mechanism. And uh, those are very difficult to, to figure out in any society. Um, if you look at uh, some of the economics research on cooperation games, um, it's really, really difficult to set up rules where people will effectively and productively cooperate with each other. Most In most of the uh, these games, the typical outcome is failure, where everybody just starts punishing each other because altruistic punishers end up basically saying, no, I don't care if I, if it hurts me. I'm actually going to hurt you because I dislike you for some reason. I'm not going to trade with you. I'm not going to do anything productive. And so probably what they need is some sort of pilot program, some way that they can set up like little cities, little Wasn't that zones. supposed to be Slaver's Bay? I mean, Slaver's Bay is essentially the sort of experimentation zone. So something, I mean, but not just one. You need, you know, half a dozen, dozens of these things, and you need to build in conditions for success and conditions for failure. And you need, and with any society, you need to, to spend some time at figuring out what what works. And that's something that no one in Game of Thrones does. Um, they're not really concerned with the quality of the rules and the effectiveness of the social rules that are that surround them, because everybody is either out to uh, side with power or take it for themselves. Um, and so you don't really see, uh, you, you just don't see a, a kind of systematic thinking about what sort of, about how to set up a society that is going to be materially different, that is going to be productive, that is going to advance um, and be better for, not just for those who are taking power, but for the subjects and for the for the little people who are sort of underneath them. We, we, I mean, we've talked about this a, a lot in the context of, of Daenerys, but I think it's even more striking with Rob Stark, who is trying to found a home 
whole new political entity, a kingdom of the north. He, he proclaimed himself king. And then the first thing he does is sort of invade the Westerlands because he, because he knows how to fight and he knows who he's enemies are, and he has this military cast behind him that has uh, anointed him as, as the king, but he doesn't have any vision at any point in time of- Institutional inertia is what, real? What the kingdom of the North is, yeah. or even what it's for, or, or why a typical Northern person who doesn't have a personal grudge against the Lannister family would want to care about any of this. And it, it leads him in some ways to his ultimately unsound kind of military approach, right? I mean, why can't they wage a defensive battle to secure their homes and, and their homeland is in part, I think, tied to the fact that they don't have an actual agenda for, for building this new kingdom, this new nation. When John puts himself in essentially the same position, he at least has the excuse that, you know, these the zombies are a much more real and acute threat to, to common people than the Lannisters ever were and the sort of need to mobilize for the military emergency I, I think you can sympathize with. But, you know, to proclaim yourself the political leader of a brand new country and then have nothing to say about how things are going to impact you, uh, you started with that quote about, you know, Aragorn's tax policy, but, I mean, what's, what's Rob Stark's tax policy? <laughs> Well, and part of what you see dying in the early season, in the first season of Game of Thrones, is that distinct sense of northern identity. I mean, you know, you have Bran saying, you know, our way is the old way, going out to see his father behead the deserter from the Night's Watch. I mean, Ned Stark is sort of the repository of the idea of a particular kind of northern justice and identity, and also, frankly, a defensive strategy. One of the things you see in the first season is him telling Howland Reed, who is this old comrade of his, to secure the neck, which is a sort of narrow passage to the north in this swampy region. And so again, there's the idea of the defensive strategy, the distinct northern kingdom. And remember, I mean, these were the seven kingdoms. Rob and John aren't so much trying to found something new as kind of break the confederacy of the seven kingdoms and return to a time when the north was ruled independently. But that institutional memory and that sort of cultural identity have been disintegrating and disintegrate further over the course of the series. In a lot of ways, Game of Thrones is a story about losing all of the tools that you need to break the wheel and build something new. Yeah. Well, that brings us to our final section, which is on culture. Um, so my first question here is, Assuming the White Walkers can be driven back, Danny still brought over a massive tribe of Dothraki who are very different culturally from you know, the rest of Westerosi society. Um, so how can the leaders facilitate assimilation of the Dothraki into Westerosi society, assuming that assume assimilation is even desirable or feasible? I mean, not just the Dothraki, the Unsullied, right? You've, you've effectively imported five or 6,000 people who can't have kids who are incredibly culturally distinct, um, almost just to the point of monasticism. And so it's not just, you know, let's bring a lot of Mongol hordes to England. You have a bunch of different groups who, frankly, don't seem poised to get along terribly well. I mean, the, the Unsullied also don't have, you know, skills other than fighting people. So you've got sort of a surplus of people who are essentially professional soldiers. So both of these groups 
pose problems. I think one is more severe than the others. The unsullied are actually sort of a self-limiting problem. <laughs> one yeah. thing they cannot reproduce, uh, and therefore there will, they will not be sort of a permanent uh, restive minority. Moreover, as they get older, there would be less of a problem. Lots of social science shows that as men age, they're less likely to be violent. Uh, they're less likely to engage in the kind of activities that we see younger <laughs> men engaging in in Westeros, but also sometimes in real life. Uh, and in addition, there is an obvious potential social role for them. They can be a kind of standing army. Uh, and Westeros is large enough and wealthy enough they can probably support a few thousand on Selwy as a standing army, especially since there will be some attrition uh, from the war against the uh, Night King. There probably already has been attrition of the Unsullied. One of the logistical issues they haven't dealt with well is, you know, how do the Unsullied find replacements for casualties since no more new Unsullied, presumably, I hope, are being produced. Uh, the Dothraki are much more of a problem, partly because there are many more of them. They are a whole society, not just a military unit. And obviously, they have a culture of rape and pillage and other unsavory kinds of activities. To the extent that the historical analogy to them is the Mongols, there is actually a history of the Mongols over time settling down in some of the areas they conquered, particularly in China, and to some degree assimilating. One can imagine that you know, they could take up professions like raising horses or even farming and the like, and some of them also could uh, do long-term military service depending on whether Daenerys wants to fight additional wars or not, assuming she's still in power at the end of the conflict. Uh, but this would be more of a problem than the other one, and it doesn't seem to be a problem that she has thought carefully about, though it might be mitigated somewhat in that she's not just their leader now, she's this great sort of mythical religious figure, so at least for a time, they might obey orders from her that they don't particularly like just because they hold her so much in awe. But uh, if she ends up trying to suppress their culture and do things which they consider really unnatural or unpleasant or just not much fun, uh, you know, over time that loyalty might wane. Maybe there would be a follow-up series, you know, Tales of the Dothraki or something, and how they try to assimilate to Westeros or fail to do so. I mean, optimistically, Westeros does seem to have a fairly robust tradition of religious toleration that, that is unlike the, the history of, of Europe, that you have the old gods and the new. Uh, they seem to tolerate the, the drowned god, perhaps to a fault uh, over there. And the, the Iron Islanders, though, are an interesting um, perhaps precursor of what we're looking at with the Dothraki, where they have been incorporated into the Seven Kingdoms, but never really in a comfortable way, right? There's this recurrence throughout history of, of Iron Islander rebellions, strong, effective kings kind of keep their antics tamped down, and, and they raid elsewhere, but it's it's a, been a system for, you know, sort of getting them to pledge personal allegiance to various kinds of kings without actually following the law in any kind of way. And I think that that would be the sort of, to me, risk with the Dothraki is that they will remain loyal to Daenerys, that to the extent that she delivers sort of personal, forceful orders to them, don't do this, don't do that, you know, they will listen to her, but that fundamentally this is a group of people that is not interested in sort of settling down and becoming small-scale farmers or, or whatever it is that you might do in Westeros, and they don't have the institutional capacity to sort of enforce that kind of rule on them. They've also, I mean, they've come here as conquerors and it is at odds with Daenerys's 
uh, aspiration to not just sort of burn everyone to death, right? I mean, if she did come in and just sort of kill everyone, then you could assimilate the Dothraki as a new kind of ruling class, uh, but she doesn't want to do that. But then you're going to have a, a real challenge of coexistence. I mean, yeah, I think this is where the rule of law and nonviolence, you know, the expectation of nonviolence comes in, right? Um, and that's just not something that Daenerys has ever had for the Dothraki for obvious reasons, right? She has, in fact, expected them to be quite violent, encouraged them. And so, you know, integration means that uh, you're going to have to have um, and the idea of equality under the law and uh, consistent, perhaps not overly harsh, but consistent punishment for, uh, for infractions, um, as well as a kind of concerted effort to integrate the Dothraki into society um, and to give them economic opportunity. You have to show them that there is something better than the, you know, the, the life of horse riding and rape and pillage, um, which uh, you know might be a little bit difficult. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I, I I think this is just, this is one of those issues where uh, someone like Daenerys is going to have a really hard time thinking about this simply because she's so disinterested in questions of uh, institutional incentives and quest- and the idea of a kind of basic equality uh, uh, under the law. I mean, I think to circle back around, though, it, we know that the Dothraki are riding hard up the King's Road. They're supposed to be at Winterfell in a fortnight. Existential threats can also be a great transformer. One thing we've seen that since John let the wildlings through the wall and got murdered for it is that the existential threat faced by the North has pretty much eliminated the problems that everyone expected to emerge when the wildlings crossed the wall. Tormund is commanding at Eastwatch, and that's apparently going okay. You know, that has not been some sort of recurring problem for Sansa and Arya up at Winterfell. You know, maybe one of the things about the Night King is not only does he turn everyone he touches into dead people, but turns everyone he faces into citizens of Westeros. Maybe, but I think a lot of this also is tied into the economic issues that we started out with and that with both the Dothraki and the Ironborn, one of the main reasons why they rape and pillage is because it's a lot better than the alternatives that they have available to them. So you can either scrounge for a living on the Iron Islands, you know, among the rocks or whatever, or you can, you know, rape, pillage and steal cool stuff. And that second alternative looks pretty good compared to the first one. And similarly with the, you know, the Dothraki uh, and it's only if there's a job market and economic growth which provides opportunity. And this is actually true with real world immigration in the US. Immigrants have much lower crime rates than natives. One reason why, because they integrate into the job market. In countries where refugees don't integrate into the job market, the job market is closed. Like in some European countries, the situation is worse. Uh, so. Uh, here, too, having a more dynamic economic system, uh, if that exists, people might say, you know what, risking my life is not as good an idea as doubling or tripling my wealth over the next 10 years without risking my life. If, on the other hand, the only alternative is either near starvation or rape and pillage, go rape and pillage. That would be the, <laughs> you know, the answer to that for many people. Well, I'm next going to move us into taking some questions from Twitter and then also from the audience. So I'll start off with one from Twitter. Um, Thinking about sort of Game of Thrones houses as almost corporate entities, how can they maintain mop policy goals over successive generations? Is there kind of like a principal actor problem here? Uh, I don't think necessarily because 
unlike corporations, these are essentially family businesses, right? Uh, and the reason, ideally at least, why people can trust each other is they're all family. They all have this same goal of keeping up the wealth and power of the house over time. Now, in families like the Lannisters and the Targaryens and some others, this sort of breaks down and you have sibling antagonisms or even people killing their parents and so forth. But in general, part of the reason for family-run institutions is precisely to reduce principal Asian problems to make it easier for people to trust each other. Of course, you do face the problem that sometimes the most competent person is not actually a member of the family. Uh, and that's one reason why the family-run business model is not always the best model for a lot of social institutions. But for more sort of personalistic societies, which are overall low-trust societies, uh, it sort of makes sense. And you see time and again, even a dysfunctional family like the Lannisters, or time, we're all Lannisters, we should be able to get together, we should serve the family. Uh, and you know, we see that recently with Sansa and Arya, the Stark sisters getting back together and so forth. So uh, this is a society where it's on the whole easier to, much easier to build trust between relatives uh, than it is to build trust uh, in, in more impersonal ways. Clear mission statements. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not entirely kidding. I'm a little bit kidding. Uh, the Lannisters are known for what? They always pay their debts. And this is something that is a, a clear part of the family identity that has been passed down uh, through generations and has stuck. And it's because it's clear. Uh, you can, it's easy to teach. Um, it's, and you, they can demonstrate its importance to the family's uh, to the family's fortunes, um, both politically and economically, and so those sorts of mission statements can help the families uh, maintain a kind of a, a clarity about what they want to do, what they exist to do, and, uh, and and to keep that going through successive generations. Great. Next question: um, Which of the four major religions—the Seven, the Lord of Light? Uh, the red god or the drowned god seems the most conducive to ongoing societal development. Well, the, the Lord of Light can, can bring people back from the dead, which I, I think is pretty impressive. They, they, they dance over that pretty casually in the show. Like, John mentions it, and then people are like, oh, that's interesting. And there's no, like, well, maybe we should track down the woman who did that. And even if we think she gave some bad advice in the past, like, put her to work, uh, try to understand this, talk to the maester, see how it works. I mean, this is part of what, what we were talking about, the, the lack of progress there. I mean, it's a sort of known fact that some of these red priests can resurrect people, but nobody seems to really like hone in on that fact or try to explore it or exploit it in any kind of way, but it's definitely an impressive quality. One of the many reasons why the White Expedition was very foolish is that they lost Tauros of Mir, a man who is much more valuable than the White because he actually can raise people from the dead, which seems like a pretty useful skill that you might want to have. Uh, just seems that way to me. Uh, I doubt that any of these religions are really all that conducive to progress, but I do think historically religions that are more pluralistic may be more conducive to it in that uh, a 
monotheistic religion makes a strong claim, this is the only God. Anybody who doesn't believe in that God or our particular interpretation of him is a heretic and should be suppressed uh, for obvious reasons. That's more problematic for intellectual and scientific progress in religion that says, well, there's a bunch of gods. Uh, there might be more. It's sort of pluralistic in a way that perhaps ancient Greek and Roman religion was where they pretty readily assimilated new ideas and even new gods from other societies because uh, the claims of the existing gods were less clearly exclusive. Uh, that said, uh, as, you know, none of these religions are all that uh, oriented towards progress, and it may be that either you need some sort of reformation within the existing religion or you need more secular belief systems arising or some combination of the two. Great. Um, we'll take one more question from Twitter, which is, could the Unsullied function as some sort of administrative group like Ottoman Janissaries? The Janissaries were not an administrative group. They were actually mercenaries uh, and a special uh, unit of, uh, of troops in the Ottoman Empire. So yes, they could be like Janissaries in that a military force uh, that is of a different uh, ethnic or racial group than the dominant population and it is kept out of politics, but obviously it's self-limiting because they'll get older or there will be casualties and they can't really be replaced, whereas, of course, the Janissaries could. Great. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a couple of questions from the audience now. Um, sir, up here at front in the red shirt. So what we've been doing so far is kind of in-universe analysis of uh, Westeros. But stepping back, you know, the god of Westeros is George R. R. Martin. <laughs> and he's the one that's been interfering with uh, things and making them what they are. The showrunners, obviously, of the TV show. But um, George R. R. Martin is known for subverting expectations mm -hmm. over and over again in his fiction. And if you would think about something, what is the ultimate expectation of the series of books and shows that is going to be subverted by George in the future if he ever finishes it or is, is not Please. finishing it the subverted expectation. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I have to say, you know, the... Um, the Wheel of Time series kind of beat him to that. And Brandon Sanderson has already said that he will not finish Game of Thrones because of the sexual and violent content in the series. Um, I mean, I wrote a piece about this earlier this year, and I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, high fantasy is generally a story about a hero who does something good with magic and by his personal goodness restores order to the world. And I think that there are two ways that you can subvert that narrative, right? Either the hero doesn't restore order to the world. The Night King conquers Westeros and sits on a cold throne and the continent becomes dead and completely stagnant. Or you can have a story where the hero is on some level victorious, but is so sort of morally and psychologically destroyed by the experience that it's impossible to feel any pleasure in the victory. You know, to a certain extent, you get a little bit of that in Tolkien. You know, Frodo can't really live in human society anymore and has to go off and live among the elves. But come on, that's a pretty good option. The elves are awesome. Um, but I think, I mean, one... There's been a certain amount of speculation that John is this figure from the novels who's not sort of not as prominent from the show, but this figure of legend, um, Azor Ahai, who 
threw off the long night by tempering this magical sword that Stannis Baratheon was supposed to have. It's really amazing how much of this stuff is just lingering around my brain. I wonder what would happen if I just deleted all of it. I could probably, <laughs> you know, win the Nobel Prize. Um, but so in the in the legend, uh, Azora High tempers this magical sword by killing his wife with it. And so you could see a ending of this where John kills Danny, thereby forging a magical sword that allows him to kill the Night King. But what is it worth it if he doesn't have love or something like that? So, I mean, I think either you don't get the happy ending or the happy ending is so compromised that it's, it sort of plays against your enjoyment of it. That was Those would be my two guesses. There's a third type of subversion that could happen, and that is instead of the outcome either being an ambiguous ending or a sad ending, which would be one type of subversion, it could be that there might be a kind of happy ending, but it occurs through some kind of institutional change as opposed to the right person, the good person coming to power. Uh, so instead of Aragorn getting on the throne and ruling for a century and solving the problems of Middle Earth to some degree, uh, you have some kind of more institutional fix, though I would note that some of the issues with Aragorn are dealt within the appendices to the Lord of the Rings, where <laughs> it is described that thing, people didn't just live halfway ever after, and he did... Uh, do some institutional changes. So perhaps that could be our next panel, the appendices toward the rings and the institutional lessons that I'm they there. teach us. I'm here for it. Great. You know, I mean, it's possible that the Night King is going to come down to King's Landing. He's going to raise a lot of the points that we had here and say, <laughs> you know, you guys need to really think about the structure of your society. <laughs> I mean, he, he seems to have things pretty well together as far as we can tell up north. Um, you need to think about integrating the undead better. Right, and you know, like, what are you doing, Dothraki? Like, this, this doesn't really make sense. And some offstage characters we've forgotten about. Uh, poor Edmure, I think, is still kicking around somewhere and he could work out a deal and... You know, that, that would subvert things. I mean, the big question that uh, George R. R. Martin is asking with this series is, do heroes win by, be, by virtue of being heroes? Um, and maybe even in a larger way, do heroes even exist? Is, is this idea of a, of a good person, an essentially good person who deserves to win, is that something that is real? And so my expectation is uh, a lot like Alyssa's, that the end will, um, will in, in some profound and, uh, you know, and, and substantive way answer no or we can't really be sure of that. Great. We'll take one more question. <laughs> Drawing this out here. I want you to raise your hand higher. Show that you really want it. <laughs> Sir, the green shirt. When you play the game of hands. <laughs> <laughs> you raise or you die. You get chosen or you don't. There's no dying. <laughs> All hands must die. <laughs> uh, could part of the uh, economic uh, stagnation be the Iron Bank's fault? And should they audit and end the Iron Bank? <laughs> I mean, as far as we can tell, the Iron Bank lends to everybody as opposed to, you know, House Lannister or House Tyrell. So they're probably a force for more economic... I don't know the terms for these things. I'm just a critic. Um, but they're probably a greater engine for economic growth than the systems of lending through the noble houses, wouldn't we think, right? I mean, they're also you know, run out of the free city of Bravos, And so my guess would be that they have a more expansive uh, approach to all of this than some of the more traditional Westerosi banking institutions. 
I'm not pro Lannister or anything, but I'm always impressed by the Cersei being the only person on the show who actually seems to understand fiscal policy and the use <laughs> of, and like the importance of credit. And you saw this in this season, right? Is that like she could she understands? Oh, I can borrow and I can use that and I can yeah, use but, our our house's good name. The Golden Company was founded by Targaryen, you know, illegitimate Targaryens. They're not going for Cersei. <laughs> It would be good to have historical price data about Westeros, <laughs> and so we could really assess what's going on. I, I think a this lot, is what the maesters do, should be doing. We actually right? do have a certain amount of historical price data in the first novels when you see prices escalating for um, just like uh, regular. What is the word for things that you have to have staples? In yeah, well, well, we see <laughs> we, we see that wartime shortages cause price increases. Sure. But you know, if you look back at like the the Duncan Egg Tales or, or the Princess and the Queen, and try to look at, at prices from from the distant past and and see if there's an inflationary pattern, I, I'm afraid in my brief efforts to look into this, Martin has been a little sloppy in terms <laughs> of saying what things cost over time, and it, it makes it difficult to really assess you know whether the Iron Bank is is overprinting. That's the whole reason why they had to appoint Littlefinger as the master of coin so that he could sort out the price level and uh, have a, an inflation target. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, okay, and then the very last question, this is, I just want a two-word answer from each of you. Who is the most likely to end up on the Iron Throne and who should end up on the Iron Throne? Feel free to start wherever you want. I think m most likely is John, but it should be the Night King. <laughs> it's a close call and most likely, but probably John, though da Daenerys is a very real possibility as well. Uh, on the other question, it's very easy, no one. <laughs> Dolores Ed institutes democratic socialism. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my colleague Robbie Suave made a compelling case that it's actually gonna be Sansa who ends up ruling, um, and that this last episode sort of is setting up Sansa uh, as a, an effective administrator, but I agree the Iron Throne should be destroyed. There should be no one. <laughs> Great. Well, give a hand to all of our panelists. I think they did good.